0: Thank you, worship team. It's good not to lean on our own understanding because we're in desperate need of understanding that comes from God's word. And God is eager for us through the Apostle Paul to see our need for the gospel. So we've been traveling through some pretty hard waters, some pretty rough waters from the scriptures, and we, we get to do that some more this morning. Are you excited? Woo! Great. So, I need to pray. So, join me as I do that. Father, we do come to you with our hearts and our spiritual eyes wide open. We don't hold on to anything that would keep your work from being accomplished in us. We, We don't desire to do that, we tend to do that. So, help us, Father, to be wide open to your word this morning and help me to speak it clearly and accurately into the hearts of your people. Uh, Help us do that together, to hear well, to listen well, to speak well, and to honor your word. In Christ we pray. Amen. So as I said, we've been in Romans for the past few weeks, and and in Romans chapter 1, Paul is, is working really hard to help us to see our need for the gospel. From um, verse 16 on through the end of where we're going today, we're going to close up chapter 1, verse 32. Paul works out this theme, the theme that our need for the gospel is evidenced by the, the wrath of God against our sin, God's judgment against our sin, which is seen in the consequences of our idolatry, and idolatry being defined as choosing other gods, worshiping other things in the place of God. Uh, exchanging, giving glory to God for giving glory and honor to created things more than God, and God uh, three times in this passage. We, we saw two two of those times last week, but three times in chapter one, Paul says God gave them over to their sin, which is the consequences of our uh, worshiping other things in the place of God. So we're going to read uh, the text that we. Taught from last week and make a few comments about it. And we're going to close also making some further comments about the subject of same sex attraction uh, today, even though we covered it last week. Some more we need to say about it. And so let's read uh, from verses 24 to 27, the text from last week, then we'll pause and we'll pick up again uh, where we're going this week as well. So in verse 24, Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So we see that since people exchanged God's glory for other gods, for created things that took the place of God, God gave them over to the immorality, the shaming of their bodies. That's what he says in verse 24. And last week we called that a worship disorder. That's really the heart of our problem as people. Our major problem in the in in this world is we have a worship disorder, and it disorders everything in our lives to be outside of God's good design. And Paul almost repeats himself in verses 25 and 26, and says, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshipped and served creation, not the Creator. Therefore, God gave people over to degrading passions. And Paul gives a specific example of of those degrading passions, and that is same-sex sexual practice. And the reason Paul chooses this particular area of disobedience is he's not just hammering on that subject because it's the worst thing there is to to talk about. He's doing it because it's a it's a great serves as a great illustration of God giving people over to uh because they're exchanging giving glory to him for created things. They're exchanging the truth for a lie. So what happens to them in in their sin is God, they exchange their God-designed sexuality for uh, a perverse form of sexuality. And in light of the current debate, current climate of of normalization, if not the celebration of of same-sex sexual relations, when we covered this passage last week, we dealt with some of the objections to this passage's teaching on that subject. And it's very clear here in the scripture, it says same-sex sexual practices is against nature. In other words, it's exchanging natural relations, giving up natural relations with the opposite gender for those which are the same gender, which is against God's design for sexual relations. So again, it's this exchanging what God designed for something that's not his design. And in verse 27, Paul calls same-sex sexual practice, committing shameless acts. He calls it error, which is a word that means serious moral deviation. The Scriptures consistently teach this about same-sex sexual practice. Now, many reject this today as hateful, bigoted, like racism. Equates it to that. Because many now assume that if you seem to have a, a... this as your orientation, your sexual orientation, that it's good and right for you, and who who is anybody to say that this is wrong for you? And there's all kinds of reasons that people uh, who who try to give honor to the scriptures, who try to give the Bible as their point of reference, to to uh, make it not say what it's saying. And we won't go over all those today, but um, basically, what many of them, what it boils down to, is those. Many people believe that same-sex orientation is God-given. And they believe that the Bible's teaching on love overrides all objections to same-sex relationships. Now, um, as Christians, we don't get to choose between love and truth. We have to, we have to do both well. Jesus never sacrificed love for truth, or he never sacrificed truth for love. Paul, later on in in chapter 12 of Romans, will say, let love be genuine. Paul, what is genuine love? He tells us, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. In other words, genuine love doesn't redefine what is good and what is evil. Now, today's text, where we're going, in verses 28-32, will confirm what we said last week, that same-sex sexual practice is just one of many sins that we need to be saved from. It, it shows how pervasively sin has impacted us due to our rejection of God. And then we'll revisit what, the gospel, what gospel attitudes and actions toward those with same-sex attraction can look like as an example of how we should live in light of the gospel in a decaying culture A world sinking in sin. It would be interesting if the news, the evening news reported as Paul does in in Romans chapter 1, and said something like, Today we have another story of how God's wrath is being visited upon people and giving them over to their sins, and we have a big list to go through. So we get that in Romans 28 1 28 through 32. Now we'll read that. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So this is now Paul's third time in chapter 1 where he talks about how God gave people over to their sins. He's just giving people over. You want to do this? Is this how you want to live? You want the freedom to do this? Then he pulls back and and he stops and lets them just go deeper into it. And Paul uses a wordplay to make his point here where it says they did not see fit to acknowledge God. God gave them up to a debased mind. Those are the same word. In other words, just as people didn't think it fit to keep God in knowledge, he gave them over to an unfit mind. Or um, as people didn't think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a worthless mind. So that's What's going on? What we need to understand is that the depth and breadth of our sin, the sin in our nation, doesn't just deserve the judgment of God. It is the judgment of God. The depth of our sin in this nation is not, does not just deserve God's judgment. It is God's judgment in just giving us more fully over to our sins. This is similar to what Paul said back in verse 21. He said, though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, but they became futile in their thinking. We can't think rightly about what is right and true if we reject God. Our minds were meant to run on God. They were designed to be God-centered, God-wisdom imparted. And when we reject him, we can't think rightly. We, We may be brilliant in other ways, but we can't think rightly about what is right and wrong, what is true and false. We are shocked by the horrific things people do. This is the reason for the moral calamity in our nation. And we're shocked often by the terrible things that we encounter or that we hear about. We should be, but then again, we shouldn't be. Because when you disengage from God, you get, that's what you get. And Paul goes on and says in verse 28... God gave them up to a debased mind or an unfit mind to do what ought not to be done. Just as people didn't see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to an unfit mind to do what shouldn't be done. Paul then gives us a list of 21 ways we can live out of unfit or debased minds. It's not an encouragement to do that. And it's a sampling. There are other lists in Scripture, so there's a lot more than these 21 things. But These 21 things are, are as I said, a sampling of ways that we live out of unfit the base minds, when we reject acknowledging God. The point isn't that everyone in our society or any society is as bad as they can be. You're all not as bad as you can be. Isn't that good news? Call your parents and let them know you're not as bad as you can be. The point is that as people reject God, as they don't glorify God or give thanks to him or create their own versions of God, these things that ought not to be done are increasingly done and in worse ways. Now, some of you are saying, what you're saying is depressing. I mean, look, last week the Seahawks lost. We need some encouragement. Some people are happy about that. Remember, God does visit his judgment on people. Paul is building his case as to why our only hope for deliverance from God's wrath against our truth-suppressing, God-rejecting ways is that we receive a righteousness by faith in the gospel. That's what he's trying to drill into us. And we we just notoriously, by nature, we gravitate away from the gospel as our only hope. We're we're willing and ready to cling on to anything but the gospel as our hope for righteousness and relationship with God. Um, my friend, who keeps following me around as I work out at the fitness center, often talks about how bad things are getting. And I just keep telling him, that's why we need Jesus. He told me the other day, I think we need two. So, no, he's, he's got this. One is good enough. In verse 29, the first part of the list of 21 is four general areas of sin as God gave people over to these things because of their rejection of glorifying Him, they are filled with, now God designed us to be filled with His righteousness, but when you reject God, you're filled with unrighteousness, with evil, greediness, and, and malice or wickedness. And Then he goes on and he lists five more specific areas of, of sin that people are full of. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. I hope. You've all been able to avoid most of those things this week. Hard to avoid envy. Maybe you're avoiding murder. Uh, Those two things can kind of go together, can't they? You envy what people have. You kill to get. Strife, deceit, and maliciousness. How much ruin is done in our culture due to envy? Murders, yeah, lots every day. Strife, fighting, there's deceit, malicious acts. And then he includes gossips, which actually starts a new list in, in verse 30. It's it's connected with gossips, slanderers. This is verse 30. Haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Gossip is where you're whispering to bring someone down. Hey, did you hear about this? Slanders where you're just openly proclaiming it and not trying to make it subtle at all. People are God-haters. They're insolent, which is arrogant, angry, violent. Being haughty and boastful. As if And as if there's not enough wickedness, there are those who are creative in coming up with new ways to do evil, inventors of evil. God gives us the knowledge to invent new technology and we just keep finding ways to express evil, like breaking into databases and stealing identities. And the Islamic State has just they've reached a new level of evil this week. I don't even want to repeat it's with things they're doing to kids it's 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 satanic beyond satanic. It's horrible. And then there's disobedience to parents, which is not proper. Obey your parents. And then he finishes off with of these four other sin areas that that in the Greek almost rhyme. They they have the same sound. So it's kind of like I'm closing off this list. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Or in other words, people are senseless. They're lacking good reasoning. Faithless, they're not keeping their promises. Heartless is without natural affection. That word in the Greco-Roman world was used to apply to the practice of exposing unwanted babies and also of infanticide. Now, where is that happening? Yes. People are without mercy and ruthless. Now, um, that's the list. And then Paul says in verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. That's interesting. They know God's righteous decree. Just as people had knowledge of God, and did not glorify Him as God, so they have knowledge of God's righteous standard, however much is suppressed. So with people in your circle, and you, you're not starting from scratch in establishing the truth about God's righteous standards. It's there. It's hardwired into people. They're not blank tablets. They may have buried it, distorted it, drugged it, um, hidden it, run from it by overwork or excessive play and entertainment, or bought into the culture's view of freedom, but it's there, in their hearts. They know that those who practice such things deserve to die. Really? Paul, are you serious? Yes. Deep down, under however many layers, they know that God's righteous judgment for doing these things is, is death. And only a, a handful of these things at most, maybe murder, maybe disobedience to parents, actually received a death penalty under old Jewish law. Um, but he's not talking about the physical death penalty, that they know that, that they deserve physical death. He's talking about, in some sense, deep down, people know that all sin deserves God's final condemnation. So what Paul is saying is that even though people are under the mind-numbing and heart-numbing influence of sin, That it is intense and it's even intensified by God giving them over to it, so that their minds are debased, unfit for choosing moral, right morals. They are still responsible. Still responsible. They're, They're still accountable for knowing about God and his righteous standards. And he says they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, which is worse? Practicing these sins. Practice makes perfect. Doing these sins or not only to do them, but to give approval or commendation to those who do them. And the answer is, it's worse to approve of them. Because, in part, it encourages others to sin. And even if they don't know that you approve of them and you're not celebrating them in their sin, and you don't have any personal contact with them, God knows your heart, and he knows that you're saying, I'm so glad there are other people who are doing the evil that I'm doing. I like their safety in numbers. So you're, you're more grateful for there being more rebellion against God? So I wonder what are ways that we might give approval to or encourage others to sin. Whether our, our spouses, our kids, co-workers, employees, students, neighbors, or even fellow Christians. This is, um, I hate to use this example, but um, one way that we encourage other people to sin or that we give approval to their sins is through the use of pornography. It encourages media people and distributors and actors and uh, models to sin as they encourage us to sin. It's a vicious cycle. We consume it, they produce it, they produce it, we consume it. Of course, we talk a lot about men being offenders here. Um, women are increasingly offenders in this area. And a recent example that is really surprising to me is is the uh, the book Fifty Shades of Grey, which I understand, I haven't read it but I understand it's basically just porn in print. And um, a startling number of women, including Christian women, said this was their favorite book of the year. And it's such an enormous hit in our culture that a, a movie is being made and about to be released, Fifty Shades of Grey. I could go on and on with examples of how our culture is sinking deeper and deeper into the moral chaos and corruption of being given up to a debased mind as we don't think it fit to keep God in our minds. So what I want to talk about now is why is this happening? Well, we know because we've rejected God and he's giving us over to our sins. But in our culture, why is God allowing so much change in our nation? Just looking at our own nation. I think it's so that his church will wake up to his calling. It's a gospel opportunity. If we live in America, then we should be here for the same reason missionaries are in India or Kazakhstan. We're not here for our comfort, expecting our country's customs to reflect our Christian convictions, reacting with hatred and anger when they don't. The church is to be on mission to our culture. It's easier when the culture kind of agrees with Christian morality to feel like, well, they're here to support our our morals and our values and forget that people are lost, regardless of whether they're moral or openly immoral. So it's really more of an opportunity for the church to be the church. Now, that doesn't mean we don't do what we can to influence and support policies and laws that are closer to a biblical morality but we approach people in our society as those who need the gospel, not as those who we expect to believe and behave like Jesus. Have you noticed how hard it is to believe and behave like Jesus? So we struggle to do it. We don't expect the culture to do it. I'm coming back to the subject of of, uh, same-sex attraction in light of this whole section because this is such an important area for us to think biblically about and for our response to be a gospel response. What I would like to do in the remaining few minutes is just say a bit more about what a gospel response can look like. And perhaps this will help us see how we reach out to other people who are in other sins besides that as well. First, we know we are sinners whose only hope is in the grace of of Christ. Same-sex attraction sins are not worse than sins of gossip, greed, envy, or deceit. We must not have attitudes or actions from a heart of self-righteous pride and disgust toward gay people, but with broken, humble hearts. And second, a loving response is is to accept people with same-sex attraction as people made in God's image not to accept their same-sex practice as normal and good. It is not loving to affirm people in what God says is sin. This would be giving approval to those who practice what God has clearly said is is against his design. So here's a couple uh, stories, or at least one, what I have time for. A lady named Rosaria Champagne Butterfield was a lesbian. She was a professor at Syracuse University who viewed Christians as bad thinkers, who were sheltered from the world's real problems. She was preparing to write a book analyzing the hatred that the religious right uses against their favorite target, queers, or at that time, she says, people like me. Professor Butterfield wrote an article in the local newspaper, and as a result, she received boxes of both hate mail and fan mail. She filed the two different kinds of letters in their respective containers, all except one. The letter from Ken Smith stumped her. It was the kindest letter of opposition she ever received. The letter asked good questions, but Ken didn't argue with her or attack her. This gentle, genuine letter initiated two years of life-on-life conversations, two years of life-on-life conversations that culminated in Rosaria's trust in Christ and experiencing a grace filled transformation. She later described how Ken and his wife Floyd's vulnerability and transparency prompted her to open her life to them. She says, I invited them into my home and into my world. They met my friends, came to my dinner parties, saw me function in real life. They made themselves safe enough to do this. They invited her into their home. She noticed how unselfish they were. She says, I remember feeling like I could talk to them about anything. Ken stressed that he accepted me as a lesbian, but he didn't approve of me as a lesbian. He held that line firmly, and I appreciated that. Do you see both love and truth going on there? This is what we must do in reaching out to any people who are steeped in any sin, because this is what we needed in Christ. We needed love, and we needed truth. And so both of those are not to be compromised. There's much more to her story. Today, Mrs. Butterfield is married to a man who also happens to be a pastor, which is, shows the consequences of her past sin to be married to a pastor. <laughs> Not every same-sex attracted person who comes to Christ will enter into an a, a opposite-sex marriage, but there are other options they can pursue, such as being celibate, which Jesus said is a good option, Paul said is a good option. There's more to say there. I'm going to tell you one other story before we close. On June 16, 2012, Dan Cathy, who's the CEO of Chick-fil-A, inadvertently prompted a nationwide controversy by stating that God is the one who defines marriage. On the other side of that controversy was Shane Winmeyer. Shane has been a leader in the LGBT movement for many years. He is the founder of Campus Pride, the leading national organization for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transsexual, transgender college students. Shane had initiated a a national campaign against Chick-fil-A, yet Dan Cathy called him and they spoke for over an hour. As Dan continued to express interest in Shane personally, they became friends. Dan listened to Shane's concerns and expressed genuine sadness when Shane spoke of how gays had been mistreated. But Dan never apologized for his belief about marriage. He could have fought fire with fire and further convinced the homosexual community that he is a hater. Or Dan might have modified his moral convictions to conform to our culture's standards. Instead, Dan refused to allow a nationwide controversy to blind his vision. He responded with both love and truth not hatred or compromise. So responding to or reaching out to those with same-sex attraction is the same as the way we deal with all who need Jesus. We are sinners who Jesus has loved and saved, so we can love other sinners. We can listen, ask good questions. We can speak truth and love regardless of the response. There are a lot of complicated issues that come with any sin, not the least of which is those coming out of same-sex attraction. And um, it's not the place or the time to unpack all that today, not that I necessarily have all the answers. But this I do know. I can say Romans, as much as any book in the Bible, provides the gospel truth we all need, whether our sin is greed, envy, murder, strife, deceit, gossip, hating God, disobeying parents, violent anger, pride, lack of love, or same-sex attraction. No matter what our past sin is, as we'll see, uh, Paul later will say, if you trust in God who justifies the ungodly, your faith is counted as righteousness. God doesn't just let, let me, an ungodly person, off the hook. He counts me righteous because of what Christ did on the cross. And there are no second-class Christians in the body of Christ. So whatever your sin background is, if you're in Christ, you are accepted by him as righteous in Christ. But that's not all that comes with the gift package. Part of the gift package includes what Paul says in chapter 6, that in Christ all sin will not dominate us because we are under grace. The grace that saves is the grace that sanctifies, that makes us holy, that informs us to being like Jesus. We are both forgiven and freed from sin. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Let's pray. Father, if we were to list every area of sin that we have committed in heart, in mind, and word, we would be here for months, not years. We thank you, Father, that that really bad news that you do judge and condemn sin, well, it's actually good news because a universe that's dominated by sin is not good news, but because we're in we are afflicted with and we are sinners. It's bad news for us. It's great news that Christ redeems sinners and that in Christ we are made new, we have new life, we have a righteousness that comes from him, and we have a, a mission to carry out of sharing the love and truth of Jesus Christ with others. Make us alert this week to opportunities to do that.